Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Esther, the fourth chapter. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. Second week of Advent, and... This morning, our passage comes from, you might not know it, but it is one of the more controversial books in the Bible, and, and it's not necessarily its content that is controversial, but the fact that it made it into the Bible is controversial. Martin Luther himself, he was no fan. He didn't think that it belonged in the canon. He wished that he could throw it into the river. And one earliest, early 20th century scholar said, there is not one noble character in the book. Ouch. And so why does the book of Esther have such a bad reputation? And I think the simple answer is, is that it isn't religious or, or, or spiritual enough for some folks. God isn't mentioned in Esther directly even one time. 
There's no explicitly religious activity that, that occurs. No prayer, no worship, nothing. We could go, that's, that's curious. You know, what, what's going on in Esther? And if I were to give a one-word answer, I would say providence. Providence. That Esther is a book about God's providence. And, and providence is the term that, that is used in Christian theology to, to sum up the special caring relationship that exists between God and his creation. Providence describes how God relates to creation, how God upholds it, sustains it, and directs it towards its intended goal. Providence is God's invisible hand, as it were, that governs the cosmos and and cooperates with the will of his creatures. And so in Esther, God isn't named, but God is everywhere present. He is hidden, but, but he's not hiding. God's presence, and, and this here, I'm going to borrow a, a theological term that gets most used in, in the Lutheran church to describe how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. But in Esther, God is consubstantial. God is in and with and under the events that the book describes. And so truth be told, the way that God works in Esther is the way that most of us experience God. God does work through mighty miracles and and unambiguous displays of power, parting seas, pillars of clouds and fire, saving his servant Daniel from the lion's den or or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But so often God works in the ways that we see in Esther, quietly, silently, humbly, even subtly. I heard a joke that God is often subtle to a fault. And so Esther helps us understand what does it mean to be faithful and to live courageously in the ambiguities of life, in the face of an uncertain future where you have no clear direction and no clear guarantee of success. Providence teaches us that we can count on God, but we can't be exactly sure what that's going to mean for us individually. And that's okay. And that's appropriate for the season of Advent because in Advent we, we celebrate Christ's first coming and we also anticipate Christ's coming again and, and, and we believe that he's coming again but we're not sure exactly when or how. And so the lessons of providence are, are be faithful though the world be faithless. Wait though the world around you is in a hurry. Look for the light even though the world is filled with darkness. Hope even though the world is cynical, love, though the world is full of hatred, be still, though the world is full of noise, and know that God is God, and God is going to win. And so we pick up Esther's story at this crucial moment, the pivotal moment in it. And so to just get everyone caught up to speed on what's happening here, the story of Esther is set in the Persian Empire, and it's under the rule of an emperor, Xerxes. And so at this historical moment, um, some of the Jews have been allowed to return to Jerusalem, to Palestine, and begin rebuilding. But not everyone had gone home, and hundreds of thousands of Jews remained scattered across the vast Persian Empire, which stretched from Ethiopia to India. And the book of Esther opens with a feast. Xerxes is, is throwing a feast for a bunch of, of guys, 
And he wanted to show off his queen named Vashti uh, to his guests. And so in this act of drunken bragging, he says, he summons his queen. He says, come, come to me. And so she refuses this, this request. And it sparks an empire-wide crisis. Because Xerxes starts talking to his advisors and they tell him, well, if, if Vashti won't obey you, if even the queen won't obey the king, then that means that no women are going to listen to their husbands and there's going to be this empire-wide revolt. This battle of the sexes like we've never seen before. And, and so they were scared that this was going to turn into madness. And Esther is this wonderfully comic book as well. I mean, Xerxes is this bumbling buffoon almost at every turn. And so Xerxes and his advisors, they decide, well, Vashti's got to be made an example of us, lest anyone gets any ideas. And so she's deposed, at which point the search is on for a new queen to take her place. And then this year-long beauty competition begins, which is where we meet Esther. And Esther, we learn, is, is a Jewish orphan girl being raised by her uncle Mordecai. And Esther, we're told, was beautiful. And so she was selected for this, you know, ancient version of The Bachelor. And the only catch was that her uncle told her, conceal your identity. Don't tell anyone. Don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. And the reasons for this are going to become clear soon enough. And Esther was so beautiful that she was chosen to be the new queen. And they all lived happily ever after. And her uncle Mordecai, he even found out that these two guys were planning on killing Xerxes, so he let them know, and those guys got killed, and so Mordecai saved the king's life. No one thanked him for it, but, um, but they still, they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Record scratch. <laughs> Except for the fact that Mordecai refused to bow down and show respect to a royal official named Haman. Now, Haman was a nasty guy, uh, Haman was like the royal vizier. Picture uh, Jafar from Aladdin, but without the uh, hypnotic snake staff thingy. Maybe he did have one. But Haman, was, he was so mad that Mordecai had refused to bow down, pay him homage, show him the proper respect, that he decided to, to convince Xerxes to issue a decree declaring that all Jews, not just Mordecai, but all Jews, across the Persian Empire should be slaughtered on a specific date. And so this decree was issued, it, was, it went out across the empire on the 13th day of the first month. And it said, on the 13th day of the 12th month, so 11 months in the future, uh, we are declaring international kill the Jews and take their stuff day. The idea being, well, you got at least some time to get the heck out of here and run away. And, and the most just perverse terrible detail of this story that comes right before our passage begins is that after Xerxes issues this decree, what do he and Haman do? They sit down for a drink. And why does Haman hate the Jews? Listen to how he describes them to Xerxes. He says, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Essentially, they follow their own peculiar laws and customs, and so, so you can't really trust them. 
to obey you, to be your loyal subjects. You know, Jews, he's saying they don't integrate very well into our society, and so we can't trust them. Sadly, violence against Jewish people and hatred and bigotry directed towards them because of their peculiar ways has been commonplace for millennia. The Persian Empire the Roman Empire. Of course, we, we know from uh, the past century, we saw our own version of Haman's treachery with the uh, uh, Nazi final solution. And even in our own country, just over a month ago, you know, there was the uh, deadliest attack on American Jews in our nation's history at the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh where this virulent anti-Semite gunned down 11 worshipers, 11 worshipers in a synagogue because he was convinced that, that they were connected to this Hebrew immigrant aid society, and so they were going to help immigrants invade the United States and participate in some kind of white genocide. And those ideas and that violence are terrifying enough when they come from the dark fringes of our society. But, but, but imagine when they reflect the dominant cultural ideology of a place like Nazi Germany or, or times in Tsarist Russia or Xerxes' Persian Empire. And we can say that that hatred of the Jews is a cancer on every civilization that harbors it. And there's absolutely no biblical justification whatsoever for it, if that needs to be said. And one of the beautiful things about Advent is, is that it doesn't let us forget the essential Jewishness of Christianity, that we're, we're waiting for the birth of a Messiah, itself a Hebrew word. One who was born a Jew, lived a Jew, died a Jew, rose as a Jew. A king from the house and line of David. One who fulfills the promises of God we find in the Hebrew scriptures. So in Advent, we're never more mindful than our, of our connection to, to Judaism. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And so Mordecai finds out about this decree, and his, his reaction is to, to cover himself, to dress himself in sackcloth and cover himself in ashes. He's going into mourning for, for the genocide that awaits his people. And he's going to hope, he goes to the king's gate, because he's hoping that word is going to get to the one Jew who holds the highest position of power in the Persian Empire, Queen Esther. And so he goes as far as he can. The, the king's gate, because you're not allowed inside wearing sackcloth inside the king's gate, hoping someone will notice him. Know that he is Esther's uncle and get word back to Esther so maybe she can do something about it. And it's interesting that he can only go to the entrance of the king's gate, to the citadel. It's very, very telling. Because, yeah, the, the king's gate was at the outside of this fortress that was basically inside the capital city. It's equivalent to what we would think of like, as the green zone in a dangerous part of the world. This is where governance took place. This is where the rich and powerful lived. And it was this fortified structure. So if the rest of the city was overrun, at least the king... And his courtiers and everyone else would be safe inside of the citadel. But it was this place where you were insulated from the realities of the outside world. It was where the king and the powerful, they could live with impunity. 
The kind of place where an emperor can shamefully dispose of one queen and then hold a contest for another. Where he can order the massacre of an entire group of people and then sit down for a drink. And where he can legally born mourners, mourners like Mordecai from entering. And we see here an example of, of the impunity and the callousness of the powerful towards the harsh realities of life. Right? How, how they insulate themselves from the impact of their decisions. And it still happens today, I think, of the, the murder of the journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, right? The, the CIA claims this was overseen by the Saudi crown prince himself. And you read about the story, and it's like a, something straight out of The Sopranos or The Godfather or Goodfellas. It's like this mob hit. And it was well-planned. Uh, New York Times had this amazing feature on their website about it, and they showed how they even flew in a body double. And the guy walked out wearing Kachoji's clothes so that it would look like he left the embassy. There was only one problem. He was wearing different shoes. He really did look like him. But he wore the wrong shoes. And so the proud prince, he ordered this massacre, but he's, he's insulated, completely insulated from any accountability. No remorse, no apology, no arrest. That's just how people inside the palace do. They can keep the real world outside, and they think they can keep God outside too. That when you're inside the palace, you begin to believe the lie that you're above the law, human law, and divine law. And through an intermediary, Mordecai informs Esther of the plight of her people, and he begged her to go to the emperor and plead with him to save the Jews, her people, from destruction. And there's just a couple problems with his plan. One is that Esther has kept her identity hidden. No one knows that she's Jewish, that she's part of God's covenant people, that she's in the family. And so for her to reveal that is going to require her risking everything. That if the king finds out she's a Jew, she's liable to be killed the same as everyone else. In addition, she says it's illegal for anyone to enter the king's presence uninvited. And the penalty for doing that is death. It's a capital offense. You can imagine why the king might have this rule. It protects him against coups. You know, people kind of coming in uninvited. So if you come in to the emperor and he doesn't point his scepter at you, you're dead. And she says, and the king hasn't invited me. He hasn't called for me in a month, which is not a good sign. And so she says, uh, the odds aren't looking good. And in fact, he might be thinking, well, it's about time to, to, to search for a new queen. And to make it even worse, in all likelihood, Haman, he's kind of like the chief of staff for Xerxes, and so if she's going to request an audience with the emperor, she's going to have to go through him. And so for Esther to do something, for her to help her people, it is going to require her to risk everything. But that's the thing about the palace. That's the thing about power. The question is, are you in the palace, or is the palace in you? It's not a bad thing for God's people to have power, for God's people to have, be in a position of influence. That's good. But the thing about power, as Lord Acton famously said, is it tends toward corruption. To use power and, and to not be used by it means that at some point you're going to have, have to risk losing it. 
to do the right thing. Because what good is power for a person of faith if you can't use it to do the right thing? If it makes you into someone who cravenly holds on to it at all costs, including the cost of your own soul. I think that's one re- reason why we get so disgusted with our politicians is, is we see that their entire political lives are, are calculated so as to hold on to their power. And rarely, if ever, do we see someone stand on principle when it might cost them something in the next election. And so if we're going to serve God at some point in whatever place of influence we find ourselves, we're going to have to come out as a Christian, and we're going to have to use the power and influence we have in such a way that we risk losing it. Otherwise, power, prestige, privilege will be revealed as idols, false gods whom we worship and serve and who ultimately have control over us. And so it's not a question of if we will have to do that, it's a question of when. That's what we see in the next exchange between Mordecai and Esther. She responds with her legitimate fears. And he says, don't think that if you keep hiding your identity, you'll be spared. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. If you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's as close as Mordecai gets. That's as close as anyone gets in Esther to mentioning God. But it's his great confession of faith in God's providential care for his people. He doesn't know how, but he knows that God will. And then he asks Esther to consider her role in God's providential care for her people, to ask the question that should haunt us all. Who knows whether or not you have come to be in the place where you are for such a time as this? That's a great question for us to wrestle with during this season of Advent, of praying and waiting, because we too can ask, God, why have you put me where I am? And given me what I have in this particular time and place, how can I leverage that? How can I risk that to serve you? The great English commentator on the whole Bible, Matthew Henry, said of this, We should, everyone, consider for what end God has put us where we are and study to answer that end. And take care that we do not let it slip. The great question then of God's providence in the end isn't, is God in control of the universe? But it's, is God in control of my life? And so as we anticipate the celebration of Christ's coming the first time and look forward to his coming again, that's the essential question we're invited to meditate upon. And if the answer is yes, that doesn't guarantee anything accept our place in the kingdom. If I perish, I perish, says Esther. Which is another way of saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And I love these words that, that I discovered this week from uh, the Old Testament scholar and commentator, uh, Ian de Guid. And he said, what I'd said in some, what I would like to say in summing up what Esther means, but he said it better than I can say it. 
So I'm going to close with his words. He says, Esther had to act as well as fast. She needed to take her life in her hands, risking everything for her people. She did so without any explicit promises from God to protect her or bring about a successful conclusion to her mission. The question, who knows if you have risen to a royal position for such a time as this, could just have well been answered in the negative as the positive. There was no voice from heaven commanding Esther to act, no burning bush to convince her of God's call, no miraculous signs that she could perform to persuade the king to let her go. Perhaps God would remain hidden and allow many of his people to die, including Esther herself. There are no guarantees of success when we stand up for God if success means getting what we want. Yet at another level, Esther's success was guaranteed. God had committed himself to maintain a people for himself, not so that they would be comfortable, but so that they could bring him glory by serving him and carrying out his purposes in the world. And so no matter what sinful paths had led Esther to where she was, she was undeniably now in a position to give God glory by publicly identifying with her people and, if necessary, laying down her life through that identification. She could glorify God by perishing as well as by convincing the king. It was up to God how to glorify himself through Esther's obedience, whether by delivering the people through her or allowing her to be martyred in his service. But he would be glorified one way or the other. It's the same for us when we step out in faith. However weak and trembling, we cannot know ahead of time how God will choose to use us. He may heal our diseases, transform our breaking marriages, and plant thriving ministries through us. Or he may sustain us in obedient submission to him as our earthly hopes are dashed and our lives are poured out for apparently little purpose. Either way, we have the guarantee that he will use even our faint faith as the means of bringing glory to himself. With this assurance, we can add to Esther's cry, if I perish, I perish. Simply let me perish in a way that brings glory to God. And so what do we learn from Esther? Be faithful, bear witness, trust God. And as my great-grandmother would say, even the angels can do no more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.